0: Welcome to Food Marketing Nerds, your weekly serving of marketing advice and industry insights with the smartest minds in the business. Here's your host, Alex Osterley.
1: What is up everybody? We've got a repeat guest back on the show today, Luke Lehman, who's a longtime friend of mine, my old college roommate, and today he's now the business development manager over at E&J Gallo. Luke joined us back in season one to discuss some in-store marketing tips, which I'd strongly recommend if you're interested in learning more about merchandising and influencing purchase decisions at the point of sale. It was one of the most downloaded episodes in the last season, so we invited Luke back on to talk us through the impact that COVID-19 has had on the wine and spirits industry. If you're not already familiar, E&J Gallo is a winery and distributor, and they have a ton of household brand names in their portfolio. Fun fact, they're also the largest exporter of California wines. By the nature of Luke's role, he has a great pulse on consumer behavior when it comes to wine and spirits, and he's tapped into what's selling at both a category and brand level. We'll be covering all of that in today's episode, along with a few of Luke's thoughts around how you can adapt your in-store marketing to the current state of socially distanced store layouts. So without further ado. Luke, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Second time, if any longtime listeners have uh, recognized the name. Season one, one of our most listened to guests. Thanks for coming back. Yeah, Alex, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So what's your story? What was the path that led you to your current role at EJ Gallo? Yeah, so
0: I'll start back college where we met, uh, University of Colorado in Boulder. So, Advertising major, recruited by the EJ Gallo Winery, moved to Oklahoma and worked for the Gallo Winery as a sales rep. So I made the move from Boulder, Colorado to Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I was there for about... A year and a half, almost two years, and then was a field sales manager, a distributor here in Arizona. I'm managing a team of about six or seven sales reps and then promoted there to be the division manager. So then I had a team of about 30, 35 sales reps uh, with a distributor. We're selling wine and spirits, mostly Gallo, some Brown Foreman and some other suppliers as well. And then came back with the NJ j Winery as the field marketing manager for the state of Arizona. And then now I'm the business development manager so I cover essentially everything that comes into the state of Arizona for the NJ Gala Winery.
1: Awesome. So you've got a interesting perspective into the wine and spirits industry and how it's performing. In a few sentences, how would you describe the current state of the wine and spirits industry and how it's faring through this pandemic?
0: Um, like many things, chaotic. It's really up and down. So there's some areas that are thriving and some areas that are, are really hurting. So some of them are, are kind of intuitive. So like the on-premise, which is what we call anything that's consumed you know, on the premises, so restaurants and bars, they're obviously hurting, hurting really bad. Normally, on-premise is maybe like 20% of most suppliers and distributors' business. And so when 20% of your business goes essentially down to down 75% some of these months, it's hurting that side really bad. But the retail side, for anybody who, who follows Wine and Spirits, is actually booming because you know everyone's at home. So everyone's going to the liquor store, grocery store. So the retail side is, is booming, and the on-premise side is definitely suffering.
1: So I'm not sure if you could see the big picture net net. Does it seem to be an increase in demand for wine and spirits when you take into account the increase at in retail and decrease on-premise?
0: Yeah. So it kind of depends what segment. You know, if you're talking about wine or spirits or beer, and then what area of the country too. So for me and for the NJ gallo Winery, we're highly indexed in in retail versus on-premise. So the net net for us has been very positive as far as total cases sold and total dollars sold has been extremely positive since we're, we're so strong in the retail side and not as strong in the on-premise. So that, that's true for, for a lot of the bigger suppliers like us, but there's a lot of the smaller ones that really rely on you know smaller niche placements and, and restaurants and bars that are hurting. So the industry overall, net net, depending on who you talk to, is up here in Arizona for us it is. But, you know, you talk to some people in the beer side of it, and they say, you know, they're down overall. So it kind of depends on the segment of where you are. But for us, it's it's been a net-net of, of positive for sure.
1: So have you seen how COVID has impacted people's purchase behaviors in terms of your specific category? What is it that's driving this increased demand? Is it boredom?
0: <laughs> yeah, boredom. Yeah, not much else to do when you're sitting at home. I think we've all, myself, very guilty of it used to not want to have a glass of wine on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. When you move from your from your office, the big move of the day into the kitchen, you got to separate it somehow. And for me and for a lot of people, that ends up being a glass of wine or a cocktail.
1: Are there any products in particular that have done surprisingly well? I know the last time we spoke on the podcast, Rosé was really blowing up at the time. But any anything that's jumped up ahead in comparison of how other brands are doing?
0: Yeah, there's a bunch of trends obviously going on. So the biggest one, and it's kind of gone in waves, too, as we've been in this thing for, you know, seven months now. The big brands were winning. That was the first wave, right, like in March and April. But everyone wanted, like, security. Everyone wanted something that was tried and true. They wanted the brands that they knew and could trust in life in general. It seems like people just wanted something that they knew and trust. So our big brands, you know, like Apothic and Barefoot and Ramsterdam, and some of those brands were exploding and doing extremely well, and they still are. But that was the first wave is that people were buying the tried and true stuff and then buying value also. A lot of people weren't sure about their finances or what was going to happen. So they were buying more value wine in general. And so we still see that. But now, I think over the last couple of months, the trend has been all of a sudden people are kind of settled in, it feels like. And so and people still aren't necessarily going to restaurants as much, but they kind of want to indulge. So we're, we're actually seeing premium wine above $11 grow faster than the value wine under 11 now. And I think it's, because people aren't going to restaurants and getting that, you know, forty dollar bottle of wine, but they want to indulge on something, or, or even as I was talking about when I, you know, you move from your office to your kitchen is a big move for the day, that you want to indulge on something and wine ends up being that. So we're actually seeing premium wine grow even faster now in this kind of second uh, half of COVID so far.
1: Interesting. I wonder if there's a subset of customers who maybe realizing that their financial situation isn't impacted as much and they were kind of playing it conservative at the beginning, I don't know. Stimulus checks, people are going and buying nice wine.
0: Yeah, that's true. And you figure all the money that people would be going to dinner, you know, if they spend so much money per month or per week going to dinner, if you're not doing that, that's, you know, income that I think seems to me that people are spending that on, you know, eating at home and then buy a nice bottle of wine with dinner.
1: So pre-COVID, were there any interesting trends that you were seeing in the wine and spirits industry that have either continued or have changed since?
0: Yeah, so I mean, while we're talking about premiumization, that, that was definitely happening. Where and we talked about it a little bit in the last podcast, where, where people used to buy maybe a you know three, four, five dollar bottle of wine, start inching up to 7 ten dollar bottle of wine, and people who are buying ten all of a sudden start buying fifteen. And there's been a premiumization trend for sure pre COVID, and then value became strong for a little bit there, but premiumization now is continuing for sure now. You know, the second half of COVID.
1: What do you think is behind the premiumization?
0: I think consumers in general are just looking for better wine. I think as you as you try wine, and I'm definitely guilty of it, you you kind of get get spoiled. You there's so much good wine out there. As soon as you start trying and drinking good wine, it's hard to go back to value wine or stuff that's not as as good. You know, I think both millennials and the generation above that are starting to have a little bit more income, and so rather than going for the very bottom wine, maybe they they trade up a shelf or two and and uh, go for something a little bit more premium.
1: With retail really taking off and There being a ton of demand, is it possible that there can be too much demand, and there's recourse of people buying too quickly, or is the idea more get while the getting is good?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. So I mean, at the core of it, wine is an agricultural product, right? So it's uh, you can only produce so much, and it has to come from from vines, from grapes, and so you can only produce as much wine as you have juice from the grapes. So that's an economy of scale thing that's definitely helped out. B&J Gallo now is that. You know, we have such a great supply chain and you know long-term contracts and that kind of stuff to where we're able to keep up with demand right now. and you know, our team's done a great job keeping up with demand for sure, but it definitely reaches a point where you know you can only grow so much, can you only have so many grapes? But you know our large network has definitely helped us keep up with demand for the most part. There's definitely been some brands and and SKUs that haven't. So three liter box has has exploded. people having a glass of wine every afternoon. You know, going for a box wine that they don't have to open a whole bottle and drink a whole bottle has been one of the trends we've seen. So you know barefoot three litter boxes is one of our brands that we've had some difficulty keeping up with demand, but we've actually pivoted pretty well on it and and seems like pretty much everywhere that that I've seen so far is back in stock on it.
1: I don't know if you have experienced this yet, given it's only been seven months of i mean, I'm sure there have been periods of increased demand or Situations where maybe stock is running low, but have you seen like would a situation like White Claw where supply is lower, that impacts demand after in any way? And if so, are consumers yeah. more excited about the product, or is it something where well,
0: we'll see? Sure. It's we're going through the exact same thing that the White Claw did with one of our brands, which is High Noon. It's a vodka soda. It's a hard seltzer, but it's made with vodka versus White Claw that's more of a malt base. So we actually have a shortage, pretty bad shortage right now. Any, any high noon drinkers probably know it's been pretty difficult to find. And we've actually had an aluminum shortage is the biggest thing. So the same thing that Coors and some of the other beer companies have dealt with, we're dealing with right now with high noon. So, I mean, with White Claw, they were so strong that seems like they came back and their demand was just as strong as they've really built the entire hard seltzer category. High noon, I feel like we had we had great momentum. I mean, you know, up over 300% this year, we've really taken off. And I think and I hope that as we get inventory back, it's just going to increase demand. It's almost like you want what you can't have. As soon as we we get it back, that hopefully, hopefully people come back to high noon, I think they will.
1: Yeah, the shortage kind of creates some allure. So like, must be good if enough people are buying it to where there's a shortage.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: So you mentioned the aluminum shortage. What's going on there? Can you speak more to that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not my my expertise, but from my understanding, it's the same as, as what the beer companies are are facing to where we have the product available to can, but we just don't have the capacity to have the aluminum to actually can it. So I think part of it, you know, this is just my take on it and certainly not the expert on the supply chain for aluminum, but beer companies usually on-premise sales are like kegs, right? Kegs and even bottles. So you figure you take all of that business or a good portion of that business that you're no longer doing in kegs and people are buying it in grocery stores. And when they're buying in grocery stores, they're buying aluminum more than anything else. So when you see a huge spike in an in industry as big as beer and then really us as hard seltzers and canned wines, part of it too, that you had a huge boom in, in retail with aluminum cans, you just can't keep up and it takes a long time to keep up with that.
1: That makes perfect sense. I guess I didn't really consider the type of packaging that is most prevalent in grocery retail versus on-premise.
0: Yeah, I think I don't know if you've seen any. There's been a of articles about how beer kegs just kind of rotting, and this is before sports came back and, and sports stadiums and all that kind of stuff. And you know, we don't sell beer, but I know that the beer companies have had a really hard time with that. You know, it just because they send them kegs and kegs and kegs to all these stadiums and, and on-premise establishments and now they're not selling any, you know, they pivoted and their sales are good in aluminum cans, but sounds like it's not necessarily making up for what they would would be selling in the on-premise channel.
1: So in a time where a product is selling like gangbusters, or just whatever the economic situation is that there is high demand and not enough, not enough supply, when it comes to sales and marketing, does that change the approach at all?
0: Yeah, it does. And, you know, we're, We've got over hundred brands. So kinda of take it on a brand by brand basis. But I would say the biggest thing for us and for me, the sales and you know, in store marketing with, with a distributor is people don't want to touch stuff in stores, right? So we used to be and we're kind of built with our feet in the street, like to be out in stores and point of purchase is, you know, where we kind of thrive. So having point of sale, you know, when you walk up to the wine aisle with where there's a point rating or a, a necker or a coupon or um, that kind of stuff that we used to spend a lot more money on or or display pieces. Like you walk into a liquor store or grocery store, you know, here in Arizona, we sponsor the Cardinals. So you have a big football statue or that kind of stuff. Stores have really cleaned up all of that where they, they don't necessarily want, they want space for people to social distance six feet apart. So less point of sale, less display pieces, less, less of that stuff. So I know I have spent less money on that kind of stuff, not buying as much. And what we've really done is try to shift that towards more digital marketing versus the in-store stuff that's usually our bread and butter.
1: From a digital standpoint, is that, I guess, either way, it's somewhat difficult to make a one-to-one correlation between the dollar spent and the sales that you get. Is there a way that you've been able to quantify that change in budget, how it's impacted sales?
0: No. (laughs) Short answer is no. (laughs) Um, We really haven't. So I think we're still figuring that out. I think some of the big successes we've had, to go back to High Noon, High Noon, we partner with Barstool Sports. We, we put a lot of money into, into them, into a lot of their digital content, their podcasts, and into the advertising with Barstool. And High Noon took off as soon as we did that. So it's hard to measure exactly, was it 100% because of the digital content and Barstool? It seems like it, it was definitely a huge part of it, or just people starting to find out about High Noon. It's hard to tell exactly where it came from, but it seems like that was a good spend. Where you know we we grew, you know, over three hundred percent on high noon, and those dollars that we would have spent, you know, in store, putting towards those types of partnership and digital has, has been good. The other the other success, well, we'll see success so far is barefoot. So barefoot partnered with uh, Black Eyed Peas, hmm. and we've we've got an app that's an augmented reality app. So essentially, you download the app; it's called Barefoot wine AR, you download the app and you scan the foot on a wine bottle or anything with a Barefoot logo, and it pops out these digital characters of the Black Eyed Peas, their new song, and uh, you can kind of do it wherever in stores or or anything like that. So we just launched that last month and we'll see how that does.
1: That's interesting. What was the process of that idea being presented and then saying, yeah, this makes sense. I think we can sell more wine from this.
0: Yeah, definitely not my, my uh, expertise or I wasn't necessarily involved in deciding how that we were going to shift the dollars to Black IPs or anything like that. But more my side was implementing it here in Arizona and getting it on in all the stores and getting the sales team on board with it.
1: So when it comes to implementing a program like that, how do you make sure the word gets out there in a time like today or where it doesn't just fall flat because nobody knows about it?
0: Yeah. So, so normally we as we discussed a little bit, I, I we rely so much on our feet in the street. It's the sales reps, it's the people on the front lines in the stores and, and we're still relying on that. So they have, you know, neckers, that point of sales, posters, that kind of stuff. So so hopefully when you buy a bottle of barefoot or if you're in a liquor store or grocery store, you see a QR code that would take you to downloading the app and then you know, try it out from there. So that's kinda of how we implement it. We're still leaning in on that, but also promoting digitally as well and digital ads and partnering with I believe Meredith on that one to promote it digitally, but still run better for me, especially is in the stores and word of mouth, both with the the gatekeepers in stores and then the point of sale at the point of purchase.
1: Is there, maybe pre-COVID or even now, is there a specific type of in-store display or merchandising that really seems to make the biggest difference? Or is it kind of a combination of all of the different pieces?
0: Yeah, alcohol is so different state by state that it kind of depends. But for here, I think one of the biggest thing is when it when it all comes together is when you can see something, you see a Facebook ad, a digital ad, you'll call it High Noon. You see an ad there. So while you're just you know out there living your life and then you see it when you're actually looking for a hard seltzer and you see see an ad or a promo code for, for High Noon, maybe you're searching on Drizzly. And then when you're actually buying the product, when you're in the store, then you see that same advertising or the same logo or the same promo code so it kind of connects all three and so that's kind of how you know when you connect with people when they're living looking buying you know is what we call it you can connect in all three of those areas usually that helps the conversion rate at the store and then then for here in arizona it's if you can have a, a promotion that's you know in the lobby or high traffic high volume area combined with size, of course, the bigger, the better, the right placement, the bigger, the better, and then promotion or something like that, whether it's on an ad or a digital coupon or anything like that. And if you can put all those together, that's usually you know, the most effective. Of course, it's more costly to do all those things, but if you put them all together, that's the most effective way.
1: Right. Kind of get a, a synergy between all of those instead of individual, just incremental pieces to that. I could definitely see how that would make a, a bigger impact together. Yep, Absolutely. So when it comes to uh, we were kind of talking about demand or shortage issues earlier, but is there ever a point where it starts to make sense to raise the prices, or is that just a variable that isn't really in consideration when the business that you're in?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely, it does. So very opportunistic, and that that is what I help control on a day to day. is very opportunistic on looking at each individual segment and seeing you know where everyone else is, where the competition is, and it makes sense to raise, I think, you know, COVID wise, it's been, it's been interesting area by area. We haven't really raised prices. Most people have lowered, honestly, or held, and we, we've held for the most part. But when there was a frenzy of buying, we put in some more deals for stores, especially independent stores and some of the chains to, uh, to buy big when, you know, March and April, when things were going really crazy and they couldn't even keep the shelves full. You're giving them deals, you know, 500K deals, 1,000K deals to bring in enough inventory to make sure that the shelves were full. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It, it's definitely, a, I would say, segment by segment, okay, where's, where's sparkling, where are our sparklings versus everyone else, where's, you know, our $10 cabs, where's our $7 red blends versus everyone else. And if everyone else is, depending on the strategy of that brand, you know, we might take it up. Of course, the higher the price, the higher perceived value. So, anytime we can take price up to have a higher perceived value of the brand, that's great. But when you talk about brands like $11 and below, there's a price elasticity there to where people will trade off very quickly on a $7 brand or an $8 brand. So you have to be careful. Like a, a dollar change on, from 7 to 8 bucks could mean you, know, you lose 20% of your customers. It's different at the lower end than at the higher end. It's more loyal and, and a $3 increase on a $40 bottle of wine probably doesn't mean much to a lot of people. But a $3 increase on a $7 bottle of wine, is, you, know, you could lose a huge chunk of your sales.
1: I, we've kind of been dancing around this a little bit with promotions and I've talked about it with previous guests. But can you kind of outline the relationship between the brands and the distributors and how how these promotions and incentives to sell, whether it's directly to retail or to consumers, how that relationship really all is intertwined?
0: Yeah, sure. And it's, it's, it's one of those things I live it every day. So I forget that it's not intuitive, <laughs> The average person that doesn't doesn't live it every day. So it's there's a three-tier system of alcohol in the U.S. So supplier has to go through a distributor and then to a retailer. So currently I work for the supplier, and then we partner with distributors to sell our products. that they, they, they sell the products then into the retail stores who, of course, then sell it to the consumers. So basically the way our frontline works is most of the people, really everybody who's in the store day-to-day are, are the distributor personnel. So, you know, all the marketing and the point of sale and everything that, that we put together, Gala puts together, is really my job is to get that distributor on board and to implement through them. So any kind of display piece or point of sale or coupon or anything that's the, their tools that they use in stores to sell to a retail store usually comes from, from us, from the supplier. So it's a really close relationship between supplier and distributor. And that's really the distributors, the frontline ones who, who implement all of the actual promotions in store.
1: Interesting. So if you want to do some like end caps or something, it, that would be a conversation with the distributor. We want to put the budget into this, go make it happen.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's uh, a little more complicated than that, depending on which, what you're talking <laughs> about. But, but yeah, that's the gist of it. I mean, we have a we have a customer development team as well, Gallo does, that That called on some of the, the headquarters, the Kroger or Walmart, Albertsons, those type of people. But the day-to-day and the gist of it would be yeah, to, to get the distributor on board and then it's their job to, to implement that in stores.
1: So for in past interviews, the wine and spirits industry isn't necessarily the most equipped for quantitative sales data and real-time information on what's selling, what isn't. I don't know. Those are my words being or summarizing... <laughs> Previous guests' words, but when it comes to making decisions and seeing that that sales information, is it the case that the data is a little bit slower or it's not as specific or quantitative?
0: Yeah, it is. It is definitely there's with alcohol. There's there's so many rules. You know, it's highly regulated product. So there's a bunch of different things, and alcohol is different state by state. So the data you get state by state is very very different. And since you're in Colorado. I know Colorado very well, and I'm in Arizona. I'll just use those two as examples. So Colorado is independent-driven liquor stores, right? So like when you go to buy a bottle of wine, you go to a, an independent liquor store. There's a few chains. You can make, they can have five licenses per chain. So their data is extremely minimal as far as we scan data that goes through the the register. You know the independents don't keep track of that necessarily, or if they do, they don't want to share it. You know with with other suppliers. Versus Arizona, we have a lot better data. It's not perfect by any means. It's, it's extrapolated from, you know, call it 60% of the market, but we get a lot of the data from the actual scans in the chains that we partner with them, IRI or Nielsen. So we can look at trends a lot more clearly than, than a state like Colorado can, because we'll, we'll get actual scans in the, those chain stores. So we can look at the trends. It's not perfect, but it at least gives you at least directional to have an idea of what's increasing, what's decreasing, what's happening with prices, what segments are growing and, and what's not.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. In some states where there's bigger chains with the more centralized data points, you kind of can pull that data more accurately.
0: Yeah, more licenses. So like the good example here would be there's 123 Kroger's that sell wine versus in Colorado, there's maybe five.
1: Got it. So the more doors with linked data across kind of gives you more data points if they're willing to share. Whereas in other states like Colorado, it's more fragmented and people are less willing to to give that information yep, or it's yep. on a case-by-case basis. Exactly. Yep. Are there any up-and-coming brands that people should watch or pay attention to? Something that you're particularly excited yeah. about? Aside from High Noon?
0: I touched on High Noon already, which would be the one that's the biggest. I think. I mean, we're excited about a lot of different brands, but I think if you talk to just about anybody from Gallo, it's High Noon has the has a potential. You look at Heart Selters and what White Claw truly have done, and we're a little bit different, a little bit more premium of a product, and a little bit different. But High Noon for sure is the one that's uh, super exciting, that's really taken off, and so much that we have a shortage. And when it comes back, hopefully, hopefully it comes back just as strong. But we have uh, a number of other premium, super premium wines that are doing really well right now and primed to take off. Jay Vineyards, for sure, is one of them here in Arizona. And then Orton Swift would be the other one that I think is taking off here and pretty much everywhere.
1: So if you could go back and give yourself a piece of advice as you're just starting your career, what would it be?
0: I think one of the biggest things to go back at the beginning of my career was that I was a little tentative. And I think people who are coming in, you know, as as sales reps and early in their career, a little tentative to to speak their ideas, speak their mind. You kind of have this idea of like, you know, Gal is such a great system and everything is just, it, it's really figured out well for so you. Need, you just need to follow the system, which is kind of true. But at the same time, some of the best ideas come from the frontline workers, you know, from sales reps, from the field sales managers. So I think the, the advice I would give to myself and anybody who's starting off their career there would would be that, you know, voice your opinion and, and throw your ideas out there just because you are. Just starting your career doesn't mean that those aren't the best ideas, and Gallo certainly does a good job of, of listening to those ideas and implementing them, and you know, I think a lot of other companies do too. But don't be afraid to, to voice those, those ideas, or don't think that you need all the information or all the experience to, to voice those types of ideas and opinions, because truly, if you're a frontline worker, you're the one touching the product every day, those ideas are usually the best ones and usually the ones that we look to implement.
1: Right. And from a management perspective, it's how do you create an environment where or enable people to feel confident to voice those ideas?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of it comes from confidence. You, build, you can build a team's confidence and build somebody's confidence by, uh, we always say, you know, it's never no, but it's yes and. So like if they come out with an idea and you don't think it's the best, it's we try not to shut it down right away. It's yes and or a yes or that type of mentality to where you don't to shut ideas down right away. You try to keep an open mind. Any ideas that come up.
1: Any books, marketing books, or business books or industry publications that you would recommend from recent consumption?
0: Wine Foley has been really good that I've actually been throwing a lot of people their way. They do a really good job. They have everything from like the basics of people who just the average person just wants to get into wine, but it's very daunting to get into. And they have everything from the basics of like here's a one sheet or what you need to know before you go to a wine party, up to the intricate regions of France and all the different areas and it it gets very in-depth if you want to go very in-depth, but it also has a lot of uh, very basic stuff that I would definitely direct people towards wine
1: fully. Are there any particular regions, wine regions that are increasing in demand beyond what you might expect? Or is it more uh, the trend toward premiumization in general?
0: Yeah, I think the, the general trend towards premiumization is big. Honestly, and most people know it, but Napa continues to take off. I mean, it's, it's already well-known, but it's the one AVA, which is the American vehicle Cultural Area in the U.S. That, that everyone knows. If you say Napa, it automatically means quality, and I think it's as big as it is, it continues to take off. Paso Robles is also another one that's I think people are really starting to actually search out in stores which is further down Southern California. But that's another region that I feel like people are, are really actually catching on to.
1: So Luke, if people want to go and learn about more about you or what the Gallo has coming up, where would be the best place for them to go check that out?
0: Well, the best place to find everything would just be gallo.com where you can find all of our portfolio, careers, press, all that kind of stuff. That'd be the number one place to go. And then we talked about it a lot today, but High Noon as well is highnoon.com. There's another great website where you if you want to check out what we're doing with that
1: brand. Awesome. Well, appreciate your time. Glad to have you back on for a second time and always interesting to get your perspective on, on the industry. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcast for free and easy access to some great upcoming interviews. And if you would like these interviews around specific categories within the industry, let us know. Drop me a note via email at alex.foodmarketingnerds.com. We love getting your messages and promise we read every single one. Thank you again for tuning in and we will catch you all next week. Food Marketing Nerds is a production of Blue Bear Creative. For interview transcripts and other downloadable resources,
0: head to foodmarketingnerds.com.